Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 63, Islamic History, circa 620 to 622, The Seeds of the Hijra. There was a legend making its way around Yathrib. Now, Yathrib was a city about 200 miles or 350 kilometers north of Mecca. Now, this legend, this story, you could also call it a prophecy. The Jewish population in the city, which was substantial, had convinced many in Yathrib that a new prophet was coming, or at least had threatened that a new prophet was coming. And yes, I said threatened the coming of a prophet. Now, right away, that gives you an idea where these people were spiritually. Because Yathrib was a dysfunctional place. I always imagine it as a place where I'm going to kill you was basically like saying, hello. I should note that this is being told through history from the point of their enemies, so always keep that in mind. But according to this story, the Jews of Yathrib said, this prophet will help them slaughter their enemies in the city, the city of Yathrib, just as they had slaughtered Ad and Aram. Now, Ad is a people, and Aram is a city. But I bet you've never heard those names, and I doubt very many Jews would have understood that reference at the time. If you asked a Jew somewhere in the old Roman Empire, hey, what happened to the people of Ad and Aram? You'd probably get a confused look, and you'd probably get the same from the Jews in Egypt or anywhere else. But Arabia was different. Arabian Jews probably knew this legend simply because of where they lived. It's not biblical or anything. It's mostly Arabic lore. But again, they lived in Arabia. Um, this story was so pervasive, it actually made it into the Quran. Um, here's Surah 89, verses 6 to 13. Did you not see how your Lord dealt with Ad? the people of Aram, with their great stature, unmatched in any other land, and Thamud, who carved their homes into the rocks of the Stone Valley, and the Pharaoh of mighty structures. They all transgressed throughout the land, spreading much corruption there. So your Lord unleashed on them a scourge of punishment. So we have an old city, often rumored to have been built after the Great Flood, and it was built by giants, an epic race of people, a city like no other before or since. But it was destroyed by Allah because they were pagans and they did wicked things. They were so impressed with themselves, their civilization and just their stature, their physical height. They thought they were so powerful. But Allah has a tendency to humble people like that. Now, this may make you think of the legend of Atlantis, and that's a great analogy. It's basically an Arab Atlantis, a mythical city that was once great, but then completely disappeared. And while Atlantis was swallowed by the ocean, the city of Aram was swallowed by the sand. It was rumored to be in Arabia's empty quarter, which is a place so uninhabitable, it may as well be on the, the bottom of the ocean. You know, God removed all traces of it. 
And it was with this story that the Jews of Yathrib were threatening their Arab neighbors. Or at least that's how they tell it. How they tell it. Now, who is they? They are the small group of men from Yathrib who found Muhammad at the Kaaba and converted to Islam. Now, they did this because they thought they needed to get ahead of the game to co-opt this prophet for their own purposes before their enemies could. It's almost like the Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, but in this case, Muhammad is the ring. Now, assuming this was true, clearly these people did not get it. They were believers, but not really. Believers in the sense of believing Muhammad was sent from the Jewish God but not believers in the sense that they were following the spirit of Islam. But, you know, baby steps. I'm sure Muhammad understood that too. Very few people really get these things in the early days. And even Jesus' disciples had a tough time with what he was telling them. Or, if you want to be a little more cynical, you can be about these men who sought out Muhammad at the Kaaba. I believe this is the year 620s when this first happened. The cynical version would be these people were pure political actors. They were superstitious men who were only concerned with the spiritual world as much as it can help them here on earth. You know, like somebody doing voodoo. Maybe. Maybe. But that brings me to a quick aside here especially that this was happening in a holy place and with people who had plenty of contact with Jews who really should have understood, you know, some of the moral components of the God of Israel and how Judaism was very, very different from these pagan religions. Um, have you ever found it odd when you see a land filled with great religious tradition and plenty of holy men and holy buildings and knowledge to be had so readily, so easily, and yet, the land is full of mostly people who have absolutely no idea what God really wants from them. And that's every country, really. But it just seems more baffling to see this in places where everyone at least pretends to be a religious believer. And that's because not everyone who adapts a religion, or pretends to, really understands that in practice, at its most pure, a religion is supposed to come before everything else, and that includes your own interests. Really, did these men understand that? Would they come to understand that? Because if a religion is not on the top of the pyramid, if it's not the thing of ultimate concern, it really ceases to be a religion in the true sense. It becomes something else, often a semi-spiritual fashion accessory, kind of like what Arabic paganism was. You know, it could be also be part of an identity that at its core, has no real interest in God. Now, this is the norm. And this is how most people operated then. And really how most people operate now. It was a problem for Muhammad, just as it is now a problem for priests and pastors and imams. And it's a particular problem when dealing with leaders and politicians who want to wear religion on their sleeve because it's politically useful, but in practice do the opposite of everything the church teaches. Or like these men, they will try to harness it as a weapon to be wielded, and often for evil, violent purposes, or simple fraud or theft, too. 
you know, this is something that is present in my country, and I'm sure you see plenty of it wherever you are, too. So, sorry for the rant, but perhaps what I'm saying, these people were not just peaceful people longing for a mediator, as the story is often told. Perhaps they were cynical politicians. But at the same time, you know, step back a little, you could just as easily say that these were young, ignorant men who were just thirsty for knowledge, longing for the spirit. You know, this wasn't the end. This was the beginning. Either way, they were the seeds, the seeds of the migration to Yathrib, which would later become known as Medina. They were the start. Now, true, these people, I believe they're all men, these men, they didn't get it the way Muhammad under, you know, would understand. But in time, they would probably get it more. At least I think so. Muhammad would later send someone specifically to teach the community. So it gets better. I'll get to that in a bit. All right. So the point, we have six men. Just push the story forward here. So there are six men who are professing Islam at the Kaaba, kind of talking to Muhammad. Now, sure, they may have been spiritual infants, perhaps spiritual illiterates. But from Muhammad's perspective, holy cow, this is great. Somebody's listening. You know, who cares why? You know, he now he has a road into Yathrib. And how many more hearts could he probably touch there? And the answer, of course, would be quite a few. He didn't know this yet. So after making a religious pledge to Mecca, these men, oh, by the way, that pledge, it would be known as the first pledge of Aqaba, which I believe is the place they met. So they would make this pledge and then they would go home. So those six went back and then did some preaching of their own. And the next year, at the next year's pilgrimage, there were 12 people from Yathrib who came and declared Muhammad a prophet. Muhammad gave them the gist of Islamic morality, the extremely short version, but he also had a plan to actually develop true faith, true Islam in these people. Then in 621, Muhammad sent an instructor back with them, an official teacher to make sure that they were doing things right. Now that person was Musab ibn Umair who was kind of like an ambassador slash imam for the people of Yathrib. Musab had recently returned from Abyssinia. If you remember, there were all those pilgrims still there. So he was no stranger to practicing Islam without leaning on the prophet for every little thing, you know. He knew his stuff. He knew it well and could represent Muhammad's religion even if he wasn't there. And boy, did he do a good job. It's hard to draw a direct Christian parallel for the figure of Musab because he was really simultaneously both John the Baptist and the 12 apostles. Now he was preparing Yathrib for the coming of the prophet Muhammad, who was taking on an almost mythical status in Yathrib by this time. So just imagine John the Baptist telling people to prepare the way of the Lord and that this great holy figure, he was actually living in a nearby city and might arrive soon. But 
Busahab was also an apostle. He was a missionary, and he would recite the Quran. And apparently, it was his most powerful tool in converting people. A key moment came when Musab converted an important tribal chief named Saad Imin Muada. He was the chief of a clan in the Oz tribe. And when he heard this new person was preaching a new religion, he sent his second in command to confront him and to drive him out of the city. But Musab invited him to speak with him, to sit down and hear the Quran. So instead of driving Musab out, this lieutenant ended up converting. And then he went back to his chief, Saad ibn Wada, to tell him this. Saad ibn Wada was furious and decided to drive Musab out of town. But again, the disciple convinced this person to hear him out, to listen to the Quran. And he did. And then he ended up converting. After this, there was a cascading effect of conversions, just one after the other. And the once skeptical became more and more open to Islam. It's somewhat similar to the conversions earlier on in Mecca of Hamza and Umar. So you can see here, Islam was becoming a civilizing force on some very ill-tempered, primitive people, to be honest. The only way the pagans could possibly win was with violence, because the message, when it could be heard, was simply overwhelming anything that the pagans could offer. As more and more families had at least one Muslim, Islam was basically going viral in Medina, and it found more fertile ground there than in Mecca, particularly because the people of Yathrib did not have an economic reason to oppose monotheism. Yathrib had no Kaaba. It had no pilgrims. In fact, monotheism had deep roots there from the Jewish community, which clearly had a massive effect on the Arab pagans that came to Mecca to see Muhammad, because they clearly believed in the power of the God of Israel. So, in a way, I'm not sure it's even accurate to call them pagans, at least in the same way that the Meccans were pagans. So you have these two warring Arab tribes, the Oz and the Khazrai. It's one of those words I've never actually heard. I've only ever seen it written. In English, Oz is A-W-S, and Khazrai is K-H-A-Z-R-A-I. Pronounce it however you want. I'm just going to say Oz and Khazrai. So the warring tribes, these two tribes, finally had something neutral something that transcended tribe, an identity marker that was frankly more appealing than just the tribal moniker. So Islam was starting to erode tribal hatreds because it was eroding tribal identity, to be honest. It was giving the tribes something in common. When a critical mass of Arab Muslims was reached, that would be the time when Muhammad would come to Yathrib as its de facto leader with the blessing of the Arab tribes and also the Jewish ones. Now, this seems strange, but this is how an outsider can become the leader of a tribal society. Because if there are no tribes, there are no clans. 
if there's just Islam, then Muhammad being from Mecca, you know, being Quraysh, he's from a different tribe. He's a Quraysh. So Muhammad being from Mecca, it didn't really matter. He would be one of them. Now that's the power of the great religions. It's brotherhood in faith, not in blood. And even for those not converting, in this case, the Jews, Muhammad was not a menacing figure, at least at the time. You know, these people, from the Jewish perspective, they just seemed like an offshoot of Judaism. You know, God for the Goyim, kind of a little brother religion. You know, it's a little strange and clearly in error, but their hearts seem to be in the right place. So really, what's the harm in that? These new strangers were praying while facing Jerusalem. After all, the Muslims faced Jerusalem as they prayed, the Jewish holy city. They would even observe some Jewish holy holidays. They hated pork. You know, the Jews were just fine with all of this. So that was the situation developing in Yathrib. The authorities in Mecca were probably not aware of any of this, or at least the seriousness of it. But if they had known this, things would have gotten really, really ugly. At least if they were thinking in terms of real politique back in Mecca, you know, like a Machiavelli or an Otto von Bismarck. Muhammad would instantly become a threat to everything critical to Mecca if they really understood what was going on in Yathrib, and as we know, what happened. Because if Muhammad was a head of state, and he was an uncompromising religious zealot, they would have a hostile head of state to the north, someone who would threaten their caravans, someone who could threaten the travels of pilgrims to Mecca, someone with at least two Arab tribes in his back pocket, and perhaps the Jewish tribes to boot. And what if that grows? He would drain their economic lifeblood as well. Every Muslim convert was someone who would not spend money around the Kaaba, at the pilgrimage, worshiping their gods. Every convert jeopardized Mecca's place as the central hub of Arab life, and thus the lifeblood of the tribe in Mecca, the Quraysh, Muhammad's tribe. Of course, it wouldn't be his tribe for much longer. Now, as we know, the Hajj pilgrimage is a bigger deal now than it ever would have been without Muhammad. I'm sure he'd be utterly blown away if he saw a modern Hajj. But they didn't know that. Uh, the Meccans didn't know that. The Quraysh didn't know that. The Quraysh would actually continue to be a pretty dang powerful tribe after Muhammad took Mecca. But again, they didn't know at the time. And I understand their thinking. So the Muslims knew the importance of keeping this a secret. And it seems so did the tribes of Yathrib. So in 622, when they came from the pilgrimage in 622, that is the people from Yathrib coming to Mecca, you know, they had the intention to meet with Muhammad for some serious, earth-shattering political discussions. But they did it in secret. This delegation came disguised amid a pagan delegation, and they met Muhammad in secret at night. There were 75 Yathrib Muslims in this delegation. So that is going to be difficult to hide. 
And so what they did is they met at Aqaba, again, on the outskirts of Mecca. And they basically invited Muhammad to come to Yathrib as their leader. Instead of these were 73 men and two, and two women. So Muhammad asked them to take an oath. And here's the most important parts of that oath. We will worship none but Allah, and we will never associate any partner with him. We will obey the prophet. We will give of our wealth freely in prosperity and in poverty. We will counsel others to do good deeds and instruct them, <laughs> instruct them to refrain from evil. We will serve Allah, even when others show contempt. We will protect the prophet as we protect our women and children. So in other words, they would be faithful Muslims and also personally loyal to Muhammad. And in turn, Muhammad said, I am of you and you are of me. I will wage war against those who make war upon you and be at peace with those who were at peace with you. It's really really hard to overstate the massive leap of faith both sides were taking here when you really think about it. Because Muhammad actually had a decent situation in Mecca, at least for now. Well, personally at least. But his people didn't. So I guess from that perspective, this was a no-brainer. His people could not live in peace in Mecca, even if he could. But from the perspective of these Yathrib tribes, there was no guarantee that these tribes would not pull their oath at any time, especially if Mecca decided to fight them and things got difficult. You know, would they still uphold this oath? He didn't know that. And that was the risk for the Yathrib tribes as well, because the more forward-thinking ones probably knew Mecca would be less than pleased when they learned all of this. And Muhammad's enemies would now become their enemies. And have they really done a military analysis? You know, do they know? Can we beat Mecca in a war if it should come to it? it you know, how big's the Meccan army? Can we take them? So yeah, things were bad in Yathrib, but were they this bad? Basically, they were risking external war to end an internal war. They had to have faith that Muhammad wouldn't use the city as his own personal vendetta machine. So it was a gamble for both sides. Both sides were taking on tremendous risk, but also in the hope of a tremendous payoff. It's an extraordinary event. And it's also a preview of the power that Islam would have on the Arab psyche. And with this pledge, Muhammad, like the Muslims of Yathrib, had transcended tribe. He was no longer a Quraysh. He was the leader of the tribes of Yathrib, all of them. Now, this event, this was known as the Second Pledge of Aqaba. Of course, this didn't remain a secret for long. And once the Meccans got word of what had happened, they actually pursued the pilgrims the next day after they had left the city. They were enraged because in their minds, it was like 75 warriors had snuck into the city, cut their throats, and rode off. 
they managed to capture one who was tortured but ultimately saved by the intervention of a uh, business partner in Mecca. But this nastiness, this was a preview of what was to come. Things would get far, far worse, at least as far as violence is concerned. But on the other hand, for many Muslims, this was actually the end of the threat of violence. Because from this point on, Muslims would still die at the hands of their enemies, but they would do it on a battlefield with weapons in their hands as part of an army, as part of a real community. This was the end of the old world and the beginning of a new one. Year zero, really, for the Muslim community. And I mean that literally, the year zero, 622, with the migration of the community to a safe place, to an established permanent home in which Muslims were in control. This marks the first year of the Muslim calendar. And the city of Yathrib would never be the same either. And not just its people. The city would eventually have a new name, the city of the prophet. In Arabic, Al-Medina An-Nabawiyah, or just simply Medina. Of course, Muhammad and a few other key people, they weren't there yet. And that's the next chapter of the Islamic story. But this is really a watershed time for the Muslims. The situation changes. The focus of Muhammad changes. And even the Quran changes. It starts addressing things that simply weren't on the radar in Mecca. Not necessary or thought of in Mecca. Because from this point on, Muhammad is not just a spiritual leader. He's not just a prophet. He is a political leader, and quite soon, he will be a military leader as well. But again, Muhammad has to actually get to his city first. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time, inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.